Well, how about that? The church in these times, I think, is starving for fellowship. Yeah, starving for fellowship. And here we go. We see it right here, and that's a good thing. So God bless you all, but um, can I say something snarky? Nah, I won't do that. People are watching. Mm. Come on back and grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. John Kennedy will get you a Bible. You're going to want to follow along. Uh, you're, we're in the 13th chapter of the book of Luke. The 13th chapter of the book of Luke. Make sure you have a Bible and uh, follow along. You're going to want to see the words, I think. Some people do it on their phone, and I guess, I guess that's okay. No, it's okay. I'm joking. I'm joking. <clears throat> But um, I told you this uh, many times before. I used to read the Gospels kind of like I watched a, a kind of a, maybe a drama or a, a mystery or, or a, a movie, you know. I, I would read about the dangers that were facing Jesus. And you know when you're watching a, a movie, you're, you're going, oh, uh, oh man, dodge here. And you're just, you know, the music comes on and it kind of sways you. And you're, you're, you're empathizing for the character and you don't want them to get caught or nothing bad to happen to them. I used to read the Gospels like that. I think some of us read the Gospels like that. Like, Jesus, dodge here. Uh, be careful there. And the problem with that is that's the backwards way to read the Gospels. And the reason I say that is... Jesus was on his father's timetable. Nothing was going to stop Jesus from being crucified at the Passover. At this particular time, in this particular year, there was nothing going to stop him. And now we're getting to the place of the Bible where Jesus is in quote-unquote danger. We think he's in danger. The religious establishment is out to get him. The people throng about him because they want to see signs and wonders, which are great things, but want to hear less about what he says and his word. And so they're coming around him, and they press up against him, and, and things are getting dangerous, and the, 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 the followers of Christ feel it. And so they, maybe like us, think, whoa, we have to dodge and you know, go this way when they go that way. And we're getting to a place of the scriptures where if you have a, um, a map in the back of your Bible, I have one, we're getting midway through this chapter at a place called Perea. It's right to the east of the Dead Sea, not the Sea of Galilee, which is way up north, in Jesus' time, if you have a map, just go for it. It'll be right there. Their mind's right there. And it's outside the land of Canaan. It's on the other side of the Jordan. And he's now coming from Galilee. You'll see it. I'll, I'll point out when the transition's made. He's into Perea, and that means he's going up to Jerusalem for the final time. And what's to meet him in Jerusalem? Crucifixion. And sometimes we think Jesus was the one on trial, and of course, humanly, he was, but really, all the people were on trial. 
And, and that's what this is about. We're moving towards the cross. Interesting because we're coming on up on what we celebrate as Resurrection Day, right? Here in a, in a month or so. So we're going to time it just right. And that leads me to kind of a side note for you who are just finding yourselves here for the first time. Why are you in Luke chapter 13? Well, my smart aleck answer is because it's the next chapter. And I do say it kind of that way, except for I don't. We're convicted here just to go all the way through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So the reason Luke 13 is happening today is just because it's the next chapter. On Wednesdays, we try to go through the Old Testament. Uh, We did take a little detour last year and went through the book of Revelation, but but now we're back in the Old Testament. And so why are we doing that? Because the Bible says that we're called to give the whole counsel of God, uh, the entire counsel. We're to deliver to you, in a sense, the whole counsel of God, to, to build you up in the whole counsel. And I have something to share with you that I share almost every week. Listen, if you're sitting up here, if you're picking and choosing what you're going to preach You know what I'm apt to do because I'm human and so are you? Preach the easy stuff. But the Bible's full of stuff that we need to face, both personally and about who God is. Like, for instance, God's justice. God's justice. We don't talk about justice, the just judge, much in the church anymore. We want to talk about grace and mercy. And, of course, grace and mercy is wonderful, but God is also just So that's a long-winded way of saying that's why we're at chapter 13. We've just come here, and he's in his place, in the place that Jesus now, as he is coming down, he's going to start coming down from the north, and he's going to head toward Jerusalem. He's going to take a detour into that land called Perea. I'll show you where that happens, okay? But I want you to know as you read this, and as it feels like everything's tightening around Jesus— Remember, Jesus is on the Father's timetable. Always remember that when you're reading the Gospels. So let's get right to it. Oh, one other thing. This is an announcement. <laughs> Listen, if you're new here, you, you know why we were clapping in between the songs? We weren't clapping because to give the band a hand. We were clapping to praise the Lord. So just, I just want us all to always remember that. We're not clapping because they're up here on a stage doing something. No, they're leading us into the presence of the Lord with thanksgiving, and that's why we were clapping, just so you know that. Okay, all that out of the way. Verse 1, chapter 13. <clears throat> As we begin this chapter, remember Jesus left off and said in uh, chapter 12, uh, 57 through the end of the chapter, which is 59, He basically just laid it out all in the line, and we talked about this. He told us that we have a very bad case in front of the Father. If you're going to a court case and you know the court, your your case stinks, settle it quickly, he says in 57 through 59. And I got news for you, including the guy who stands up here, left to ourselves, we all have a bad case. Before the great judge, Jesus Christ, we're all guilty and fall short of the glory of God. But see, that's the gospel. Jesus is saying, settle this quickly. Now, that's important for what he is going to continue to preach and teach here. 
There's bad news. You have a bad case before the Lord, but there's fantastic news because Jesus is actually called the great, it didn't say great, it just says the advocate, who is the great, that means defense counsel, folks. You have a terrible case before the Lord, so do I. But we have the great advocate, Jesus Christ himself, who stands in as our defense counsel in the courtroom of God and says, I'll take what was coming to him or her. No no lawyer in the world would do that, but he does it. He's not only our advocate, he's our great high priest. He opens up this reconciliation between man and the Father, and oh, by the way, he's the one that paid the sacrifice. Come on now. So you go and you say, okay, that's where we left off. You got a bad case before the Lord. So settle it quickly, he says, so catch what he re- or he says next, or guess what's written next by the Holy Spirit through Luke. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Sounds pretty serious. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered such things, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you with all likewise perish. Remember, we're reading about the bad case that we have in front of the Father. Now, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us sort of the remedy. And the remedy is, you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's the bad case. Or how about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelled in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And after it bears fruit, well, but if not after, or but if not after that you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity, 18 years, and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. Excuse me. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said, to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Very important there, folks. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work, and therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite, oh my. This is the leader of the synagogue, folks. You hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years he loosed from this bond on the Sabbath... 
And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? What shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took, put in his garden, and grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I like the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a man took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching, journeying towards Jerusalem. Right there, folks, in between verse 21 and verse 22, all the events, you might want to write this down, of John chapter 9 and John chapter 10 fit right in there. <clears throat> and now he's in Perea. And so all of the events of Luke chapter 13, verse 22, where I'm reading right now, until Luke 17 verse 10, take place in Perea. It's important, I think, because you see him coming from the north. Why is he going outside of the land of Canaan? Because he's on God's timetable, you see, and he knows the dangers of this happening. It's not that he's scared of the dangers, so to speak. In fact, the Bible tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. And the joy, by the way, are you folks who are sitting here right now. And all the body of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? But anyway, he goes to Perea. He, doesn't, uh, he knows he's on God's timetable, so he goes outside and he's kind of coming around. But, but while he's doing that, he still ministers. He goes through the villages, teaching, journeying. <clears throat> then one said to him, it's just so funny. I mean, human nature never changes. Lord, are there few who are saved and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you began to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I don't know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, hey, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you, where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out, they will come from the east and the west, from in the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Indeed, the, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. And on that day, very, the very same day, uh, on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox. Can you imagine saying to the king of Galilee and saying, basically, write this down and take it to him. Tell him, <clears throat> tell him this. Tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. You see, I say it kind of smart eloquently because I just do. That's who I am, I guess. Jesus was even concerned to tell him the sign that you're going to remember when I rise again, you'll know because of the prophets had predicted, you'll know I'm who I say I am. He's even saying it to the governor who wants to kill him. Or, or the king who wants to kill him. You catch that? Wow. What long-suffering and love. 
Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He's on God's timetable. We're not, uh, you, you understand, he's not on the timetable of the people who are trying to kill him. Oh, by the way, <clears throat> you don't have to go there now, but you can go over in chapter 11, verses 46 through around 52, and he talks about how the religious people made statutes and memorials to the prophets, but when they were there, they killed them. Such self-righteousness. Ooh, and Jesus rails against it. Okay, O Jerusalem, verse 34, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you weren't willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, Lord, just help us to understand as you guide us by your Spirit what's happening here in chapter 13. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you need to know there's this thing that's happening with Galileans. Galileans are the people who live in the land of Canaan from the north. Israel, basically, in the Bible times, is split into three sections Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Galilee's up north, Sea of Galilee. Judea down south, Samaria in the middle. Currently, that's still kind of in effect. Galilee is up here in the north, the west bank, sort of. Kind of looks like on your map a big belly, just kind of jutting out there. The west bank is in the middle, and Jerusalem, excuse me, Jerusalem, and all that down lower in Judea. You need to know that, right? And uh, Galileans are from the north, and in Acts... To a, there's a kind of a reference to a separate incident <clears throat> where the Galileans are sort of uh, those ones who spark controversy and, uh, you know, poke and prod the people who are in power. Galileans are more like um, uh, kind of the rural, uh, who the city dwellers would uh, consider kind of uncouth. They live out in the country and they, yeah, right? But the Jerusalem people are the cosmopolitan people, right? And here, something's happened with Galileans who've come and Pilate killed and it mingled it with their sacrifices. Now, there's two extra biblical stories about Pontius Pilate that you probably should know. Extra biblical, historically, that we can document. So I always say half the battle of learning the Bible is just learning who the players are. And one of them is who's the Galileans? They're people in Israel who live in the north. Who's Pontius Pilate? He's a Roman governor because Rome ruled all around the Mediterranean Sea at this time. And how did Rome rule? Well, they sent people and troops out to the countries, but they said to the countries, you handle your own country as long as there's peace and you give us taxes. If you do those two things, we ain't bugging you. But if you do something that uh, uh, doesn't or upsets the peace, we'll come down like an iron fist, and they did. Well, there's two extra biblical stories about Pilate, a Roman governor who was in Judea. One, Roman, or one story is this uh, that we can confirm uh, through history, is that he marched his troops into the city of Jerusalem with his massive banners with the Caesar on it as if the Caesar was God. And that's a big no-no to the Jews. 
And the Jews kind of had this stirring and this kind of, I don't know if I'd call it an insurrection, but they were really troubled by this, and they got word back to Rome. And Pontius Pilate got in a little bit of a hot water about that. Here's a second incident that we can confirm. Jerusalem, you'll, uh, you probably already know, needs water. Uh, they're always in need of water. And so Pontius Pilate at one time, the Roman governor now, said, hey, listen, we need to uh, pipe in an aqueduct and bring us some water. Great and noble thing to do, right, for the people that he's ruling. But listen, he said, but here's how we're going to pay for it. Sound familiar, by the way? <clears throat> we're going to take the tax that you're required to give every year to support the temple and the priests and the sacrifices at the temple. We're going to take from the tax and we're going to build you an aqueduct. And he did it. And the Jews were not happy. You don't mess with the temple tax. That's part of the law. And in fact, there are some evidences that as they're rising up and protesting, Pontius Pilate sent some of his um, soldiers into the crowd. They disguised themselves over their uniforms or whatever. And at an appropriate signal, either by dagger, by club, killed the people who were protesting. And a lot of people died. And so some people believe <clears throat> that what he's talking about right here is incident number two. Other people believe there's an undocumented incident in which Galileans came to, um, <clears throat> to come and give their sacrifices at the temple, and somehow, some way, Pilate ordered a hit on the Galileans, maybe because there are people that stirred up trouble, they thought. Whatever it was, <clears throat> listen to this. This is front-page front news. I'm having trouble. Can you hear? Sorry. This is front-page news. Think about it. It's similar to the news we get here. And I'm not making light or making fun. But think about it. Massacre at whatever. Post office. School. Shopping mall. This is front page news, man. Something awful happened. Here's another thing. We'll go to the other one. <clears throat> There's other uh, headlines of the day, and that's that 18 people were some reason under the Tower of Siloam, and they all died. And the word there in verse 4 is, do you think that they were worse it says sinners in my Bible, but in the Greek, it means debtors, <clears throat> which can mean sinners. But some people believe that's the reason it's the aqueduct story, because these same people were working on the Tower of Siloam while the aqueduct, because they were debtors, uh, in debt to Pilate because he was making, get it? And that the tower fell on. I don't know that answer for sure, but here's what I do know. They're asking the same questions that you and I ask all the time. People come to me constantly with this question. Why? Why does this tragedy happen? Why, why were these Galileans who were just doing a noble thing, why, why were they massacred? How about this one? Why were these people, they were just, why, why the flood? Why the tornado? Why do the, those things happen to people, these good people? And see, 
What was prevalent in the day, you can just go back to John 9, verses 1 and 2. John 9, verses 1 and 2. This was prevalent in the day. Oh, by the way, you see it in Job. In John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, do you remember this? Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples, his disciples, folks, the one he's teaching asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? Who, what, what happened in their, that family? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Look what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in this fellow. Now flip back to Luke. See, when we see all of these things that are happening in the world, our tendency is to go, oh man, why? Why does bad things, you ever, there should be a book written like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? See, I'm stealing this from another pastor. We're asking the total wrong question. It's not why do bad things happen to good people. We should be asking why does a good thing happen to bad people? <clears throat> because the Bible tells us that the rain comes on the just and the unjust. Folks, The thing that Jesus is doing here is he's taking the questions. They're important questions. He's not saying don't have an answer for the questions. He's saying take those questions and first and foremost resolve one for yourself. And the question that every one of us should should resolve for ourselves is not all the things that we may or may not be able to answer this side of glory. But answer this question. Have you repented? Because we're all, unless the Lord comes first, and he could come today, before we're done talking, unless the Lord comes first, I got news for you. A hundred percent of us are going to die physically. A hundred percent unless the Lord comes first. A hundred percent. And Jesus is concerned about this. He's concerned, folks. You say, Some of you might be saying, well, okay, well, I've repented. Get on with the next, pastor. Really? Listen to this. The repent there in the first and the second instance, the word is a a verb that's a continuing, listen, active verb, which means in order to get in the family of God, there must be repentance. But once you're into the family of God, there must be continuing repentance. I had, we had some guy at the church we were at last time. No, you repent one time and that's it. Yeah, I I, I get what you're saying in the sense that you come into the family of God, you're saved by grace, right, I understand. But this seems to suggest that you are to be a person Yes, we'll ask the questions, and God will be big enough to handle the questions about why is there evil in the world. And yes, maybe we could get those questions answered sometime. I'm not sure we're ever going to get the question answered this side of glory. But yes, God's big enough to reason with us, of course. But before all of that, make sure you point the spotlight at yourself and that you're repentant. You say, well, okay, yeah, man, I've repented. Good. Okay, well, keep coming with me. Look at this. This is a warning shot 
not only to those who are not in Christ. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you're not in Christ. If you just surrender your life to all that he is, our penalty for our sin breaks the power over our sin. That means that you must recognize you're a sinner and you turn and the word repent means just, it just means this. It sounds like some crazy holer roller name or word. All it means is just change your mind and agree with God, but you gotta understand what change your mind means. There are many people that just get a book back there, magazine, which I use to share the gospel, and so, hey, read this prayer and everything's great. And you never tell them the next part of this. A life that has surrendered their life, a person who has surrendered their life to Christ, yes, we're counting on the finished work of Christ and his resurrection for our salvation and our new life, but your life must look different. It has to. Here's why he's going to tell you this. We know from Paul that you become a new creation, not a better creation or an improved creation, but you must be a person who's continued. You've repented, but you're continuing to repent. And look, he's more concerned. He's most concerned about your spiritual, eternal life. Yes, he's concerned about your physical life here, but he knows that you must repent or you'll perish. You'll be outside of Christ. You, you'll, you'll live eternity separated from God. And he says, don't do that. Or those 18, do you think that they were worse sinners? In other words, get rid of that false theology. Like Job's friends, like the disciples had that says, oh, wow, you've had all these things happen in your life. Man, I'm so glad I'm not like you. That, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you don't get it. You live in a fallen world, Jesus is telling us, and sometimes things just happen. You're standing there doing good work under a tower, and it falls on people. You're going down to the, to the worship center to, to give the sacrifices as you knew them to be given, and somebody murders you. And he's saying, instead of asking the why did that happen, he's saying, Make sure you've repented, you yourself. Every time you see a thing in the paper, it's like a warning shot across the world. Make sure you've repented. Man, I'm so busy pointing out other people's faults sometimes. I forget to remember. (laughs) I forget to remember. Yogi Berra said that, I think, but no. (laughs) No. I forget that the Lord has it for me, and I'm the pastor, folks, and I'm no better than anybody else. I must be in a state of repentance. Here he says, do you think they were worse debtors? Or, by the way, another word to, way to translate it, it's, I like this one. You think they're worse culprits than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? No, they're not. We're all sinners. I tell you, No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he goes on and he says, immediately, doesn't he say this? Luke writes it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, you know what I say to myself when I read that? I go, okay, Lord, how do I know I've repented? Well, here he gives it to you. I mean, he says it to you. 
He also spoke this parable, a certain man had a fig tree, a certain man had a fig tree, thank you, (laughs) planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, by the way, did you notice it's a fig tree? It's in a vineyard. All can come. You see that? It's not a grape tree or a grape plant. You get that? Grape tree. Where's Brandon Miller when you need him? Mr. Groceries. But anyway, you understand it's a fig tree now. So all can come, but he came seeking fruit on it. There's another reason it's a fig tree. It's because in the Bible, Israel oftentimes is represented as a fig tree. So watch this. So a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. There's some indications in Leviticus and some other places in the Bible that it took three years for this type of tree to grow and mature. And he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I've, I've found, come seeking fruit, none, but I cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to them, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. See, there's this thing that repentance shows us. John the Baptist actually started preaching about it. And I understand it was the precursor to the repentance via the cross. But remember this, John the Baptist say, repent and bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. But in Acts 26, at the end of Paul's ministry, as he talks and sums up what his ministry was about. He said to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and Judea, I didn't forget to tell you about repentance and turning to God and doing works that befit repentance. Your life should begin to develop the fruit that God calls us to, or gives us, gives us the ability to produce. You understand that? Now listen, first of all, probably talking about Israel. Israel was, uh, the gospel was delivered first to Israel, then to the Gentiles. Uh, Israel is in a place where they've seen and heard now Jesus for two and a half years, and they're, as a nation, it seems, rejecting Jesus. We'll even see that further on. But personally, as a repentant person, who comes to know the Lord, you know one way you can tell, folks? You can just do a personal inventory. Actually, Paul said, just take inventory of your life and examine whether you're of the faith. It doesn't mean you're a perfect person. Everything I do is with a smile and wonderful, and I praise the Lord for everything. Oh, yes, and I never have a bad day or nothing like that. No, but the trajectory of your life and the fruit that's supernatural starts to well up in your life. Listen, you know them. In Galatians, Jesus, or Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, love, not love like the world, unconditional love, love that hate, loves enemies that hate you. Is that being produced in your life? <laughs> I have some smart alecky thing to say about the election, but I won't say that. Do, do you have real joy 
Not joy where you're clicking your heels. You know, like, like if your dog dies or something, you're not jumping up and down going, yay, my dog died. That, that's not, that's not, that's fake. What you're saying, though, is despite the fact that I have terrible circumstances today, God's still in control, and I can rejoice over his salvation that he's given to me. What if Jesus just accomplished salvation on your behalf? Would that be enough? I would say yes, but not. He pours blessing upon blessing, love, joy, peace, not that the world gives, but the peace that he gives, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith. But how about this? In Ephesians 5, I think around verse 9, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness, yes, and trust. You know, and, and, and in Philippians 1, the fruits of righteousness are all, listen to this, in Christ Jesus. So what I want you to, uh, by the way, I've got way more. The fruit of your lips, praise, is fruit. Uh, in the Proverbs, it says sharing the gospel Proverbs 11, verse 30, sharing the gospel with people is an evidence of your fruitful life. Generous giving, whether it's financial, of time and resource, it's a fruit. It's supernatural. There's lots of things. But the trajectory of your life, not that you're a perfect person, but is the trajectory of your life that fruit is starting to develop. I always used to ask myself, Lord, why do you use the word fruit or the image fruit? Why? It just seems like godly character. Why do you, why do you image fruit? Because what happens to fruit? You eat it. But see, that fruit's not for you. It's for other people to come and draw from your life and be refreshed with life and grace and mercy and the truth of God. They just come and they just, boom, take from your life the stuff that the Lord has supplied. It should be, look folks, the Lord wants it to be low-hanging fruit. You ever been around a grape cluster that's way up there versus way down here? It's just, boom, you just pick it off and, pick it off and it's real tender. He just wants you to have low-hanging fruit. And the more that you abide with the Lord, as you abide in the Lord, Guess what happens? He starts to develop that fruit. You ever been there? You're, you're in your quiet time or something, and you know, you're just, you know, you're on your one-year Bible, and you've never missed, and you're just so happy, and you get to this one piece of Scripture, you have thought of it one way, but the Lord hits you with it a different way, and then he tells you something like, you know, uh, this forgiveness chapter, you know that one person that a year and a half ago you slighted? I want you to forgive them. And then I want you to go and tell them that you're sorry, that you're asking for forgiveness. And you say to yourself, Lord, come on. That person doesn't even care. What do you mean you're asking me? See, that's the way the Lord develops fruit. You hear his word. You know his word. You take in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. He impresses it in your heart. But if you just leave it there... Nothing's going to develop, really. You must go obey. And then fruit and fruit and fruit. And now some people are starting to come. And the love of the Lord just pouring out of you because you've been spending so much time with the Lord. Your tree, you as a person, are full of low-hanging fruit. Isn't that great? Well, he was teaching. Remember this? So he's teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman there who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. 
Listen, her head was between her knees. That's what kind of they're saying right there. That he was, she was so bent over. Oh, man. If I was bent over for 18 years, you know where I would not be? Church. Here this lady is, probably been praying the whole time, asking the elders to pray. People, pray for me. My, I'm bent over, and I can't even see the stars or the sun, and I can't look up to my Lord. I'm just bent over. Here she is. They find her in church. Boy, is that a word to us. We don't go to church if it rains. And here he says, Susie finds the need. Woman, you're loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her. And I want you to see something that's always true of Jesus. May it be true of us. She's healed and she immediately knows it's from God. Are you doing things? Am I doing things? And just silently thinking, oh, I hope they think I'm a nice Christian. Boy, have I got my theology wrong. <laughs> Boy, I hope they give glory to the Lord. It's way different. Is the way you do things, is it always about you or is it about, see? Jesus, it was perfectly about him. And as we abide and let his life shine through and or in and through us, God gets glorified. And the ruler comes. Isn't this funny? The ruler. What a what a guy. He speaks to the crowd. He doesn't even address Jesus. The snide remarks. You catch this? In the synagogue, Jesus there, woman there, lady gets healed. I mean, we should, if a lady got healed, bowed over, wouldn't we jump up and down and praise the Lord? Well, he doesn't. Remember, there are six days on which men ought to work. You catch that? Because the, uh, one of the Ten Commandments is, you know, honor, you know, rest on the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath, don't work on the Sabbath. And that had ballooned out to all these complex rules and regulations about what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And apparently, to the um, uh, uh, synagogue leader, the lady could walk or get there to Sabbath in the synagogue, but she couldn't be healed. How sick is that? And come and healed her, but not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite. You know what he said? He said, quit playing the part, spiritual guy. You come here and you have this pious, self-righteous mask on, but you're not even interested in the people, which is what we're all about, Jesus is saying. It's never wrong to do good, even on the Sabbath. Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or a donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? If animal thirst can be quenched on the Sabbath, surely a lady can be healed who has been over for 18 years. You see the hypocrisy in all of this? You say, well, wait a minute. How does this apply? What does this even do? Well, come on, folks. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you have committees and rules and regulations in the church. You can do this. You can't do that. You must be this. You can't be that. And it's this complex way of keeping people really from God. We get so bound up in the rules and regulations, we're not free to just worship the Lord. And Jesus always hates that. 
Remember when there was money changers in the temple and they were cheating people? What was the great sin of that? The cheat of robbery? Yes, it was. But really what it was, it was giving God a bad name. And he hated it and he was mad about it. And he's mad about this because that keeps people from a personal relationship with the Lord. So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham? And you could go, does that mean she was Jewish? I don't think so. If you go to Luke 19.9 and Galatians 3.7, I think it means that she believed in Jesus. She was a person who was grafted in, and she uh, came and uh, placed her faith in Christ, whom Satan has bound. Listen, folks, there's this great mistake in the church. You know the mistake, right? Is to blame everything on this, the enemy, Satan. There are some people who are like, oh my goodness, my tire went flat today, and the devil made me, did it to me. Come on, folks, you ran over a nail. You hit a rock. You hit the curb. No, that's me. That's me. It's me. It's me. I hit the curb. It's not her. You just hit the curb. And we know from the Scriptures that for the believer... There's no demon possession. So if this person is a believer in Christ, it must be demon oppression, not demon possession. And of course, enemy of our soul can oppress us. He sends you fiery darts, folks. He says things to lonely people like this. You don't matter. You shouldn't even go to church because you don't matter and no one cares. And the reality is, all of us care and you should be here, not so we can prop up numbers, or so we can bless one another and sharpen one another. But the enemy of your soul says, wait a minute. No one cares about you. Don't, don't go there. They didn't save your coconut donut this week. They didn't. Did you see those people? They sat in my seat last week. And we get miffed about stuff like this, and we leave, and we get upset. And, and, and that's the enemy who's just, boom, fiery darts. So there is demon oppression. Can the enemy make us sick? Probably sometimes, folks. Probably sometimes. Is that it every time? I don't think so. We give too much credit to the devil sometimes, and yet... There is oppression in our lives. And here Jesus had the power over it for 18 years, and he loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. He did it on the Sabbath. You know what? The enemy of your soul, there are three enemies to the Christian, by the way, the Bible tells us, the world and its system of thinking, the flesh, your carnal nature that wants to prop self up, and the devil. And what do they want to do? They want to bind you up. Those th systems of thinking all bind you up. Jesus said, if you'll trust in me and rest in me and Sabbath in me, by the way, you can Sabbath any day, at any time. Is it a good idea to take the Sabbath? Yes. But you can Sabbath any day at any time, and what, it, what is it? It's resting in Jesus Christ. He said, come to me, all who are weary. I'll give you rest. He always wants you to operate out of a, a place of rest. Even on your busiest day, Tuesday or Monday or Friday, whatever it is, he wants you to operate out of a position of rest. And what's that? This relationship that you have with him. Isn't that beautiful?
Well, see, the enemies of our soul bind us up. Jesus looses us, makes us free to the place where other people come around and they don't know exactly, maybe. They don't know exactly, but they say, wow, look at all the glorious things in that great lady's life or that man's life. Well, he goes on. He's used these two parables before, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the mustard seed, and also the parable of the leaven. He's used these two before in Matthew, but he uses it again, which means the disciples were used to hearing it. And they, then he said, well, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what uh, shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed. It's like a, a mustard seed. A mustard seed, just a little mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and it became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in his branches. And he said, well, well, listen, what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took, hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Now, we talked about this before when we were in Matthew. Most people, many people, believe that what this is speaking of, these two parables, is that the greatest things, especially in the church, come from small or little beginnings. Maybe. I just don't happen to believe it. <laughs> just earlier here in the scriptures, uh, in Luke 12, Jesus told us that leaven was a picture of evil. So if Jesus used it as a picture of evil, and if we're talking about uh, adversaries in the church and uh, things in the church that uh, creep in, uh, Maybe that's not the best way to think of these two parables of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Because in the Bible, Ezekiel and other places, a symbol of a big empire is a tree. And do you know this? That a mustard seed doesn't grow into a tree. A mustard seed grows into a bush. So what Jesus is saying here, I think, is that what the kingdom of God is here now on earth, it's going to look like a mustard seed put in a garden and it became a tree. It, came, it became abnormal and did something it wasn't supposed to do. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. In some of the other parables about, or the parables that Jesus uses, Jesus said the birds are representation of Satan and his work to get inside. And leaven always is a picture of sin. What does it do? It puffs up. And so what I think Jesus is saying here, especially as he's in this, uh, uh, being threatened by the rulers of religion, is that you better watch it because this thing that we call the church is going to grow into something massive and big in which it was never intended to be, and things are going to get in, like false teaching and false prophets, and uh, uh, it's going to grow, and there's going to be, and, and, and you better be careful because it's going to, at the time of the church, be out of control, so to speak, to a place that I never intended it to be. Whew. Does that describe United States Christianity? You know, folks, the Bible is so true. We call the things that are evil in the church now, we call them accepted and yehu. Yes, they're happening in our churches. Fantastic. Lord said, 
There are going to be the times when the things that are evil we're going to call as good. And the things that are good we're going to call as evil. And all you have to do is just go out online for about one second. You know the things that are happening in the church. And so the Bible says to us, stay connected to him. Here it comes. You say, well, man, what hope is there? Well, he goes through the cities and the villages and teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Remember, this is the part where they've crossed over into Perea. And he goes there and he says to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? See, that's another question. You present the gospel to somebody, you present the gospel to somebody. I guarantee you, one out of five times, the first thing they're going to ask you is, yeah, but what about my uncle so-and-so? That's what they ask. That's what people ask. What about Gertrude? Legitimate questions. Pharisees and some of the um, uh, religious leaders of the day, they like to debate these things. And the debate comes right here. Jesus, as, as he can be, or as he always is, is prepared. And he says, well, listen to this. You strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many say... I say to you, we'll seek to enter and won't be able. Just let that sit there for a minute. The way to heaven is narrow, folks. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The church now says, no, there's multiple ways. Right? (laughs) I mean... He says the gate is narrow. Oh, oh, by the way, for you, it could be difficult. It could be difficult. If you actually turned over, we won't right here, but if you actually turned over uh, to the parallel verse in Matthew or parallel story, he says it's difficult. It's going to be difficult for you in the narrow gate. Why do you think we've chosen, actually they've done it, but, but why do you think our student ministry here is narrow gate or narrow way ministries? Because we recognize for youth, but oh, by the way, for adults, to take a stand for Jesus Christ in this culture, that's huge, man. Just go into a school, any school, and stand up for the Lord and see. There's a lot of peer pressure, right? And so we want to build people up in the Lord, both in our youth programs and in here, because we have to go out there, or we get to go out there. He says, it's going to be narrow. And when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock the door, saying, look, look at this. There are going to be people not in heaven that you're going to be shocked aren't there. They ran around and they said, praise the Lord, brother. I'll pray for you. I'll give money back there. I'll serve on all the committees. And the Lord's going to say, no, the door was shut. You're crying out for me. And I'm going to say, I don't even know you. I don't know you, where you're from, and then you'll begin to say, but wait a minute, I went to church, that's what this is saying, I was in your presence, I ate and drank with you, I went to church for 50 straight years, 100 straight years, <laughs> some of us, right, but anyway, whatever, 50 straight years, I was, on all, I was doing everything, he's going to say, yeah, but did you know me, repentance, is changing your mind and not just being sorry for what you did. That's not repentance. There's a gazillion people who are sorry for what they did. 
The Lord says, no, 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 you've got to change and come and know me in a personal and real way. Count on me. Don't just make me the Sunday afternoon thing before the game or the Easter thing or the Christmas thing. It's me and you in a relationship. That's what your life will look like. And when your life looks like that, fruit will explode from your life. Yeah, look, keep going. We ate and drank. And you, look at this. We listened to all the teachings. You taught in our streets. I even followed you out on the street where you preached. Not just in the synagogues. I, I followed you. These people, you taught in our streets, Jesus says. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you, where you're from. Don't depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom and you yourselves are thrust out. And one last thing now, folks. Remember now, I understand he's on the other side of the Jordan, but there's lots of Jewish people that are hearing these messages. You get that? And what he's saying is, you can't just count on your race or your religion or your denomination or your grandma, or your grandpa, or your pastor dad, or your pastor whatever, right? Your, your elder mom, your deaconess mom. You can't count on that stuff. It'll never work. You must know me. And they'll come from the east and the west. They're going to be people east, west. I mean, Russia, north, south. New Zealand, maybe even Michigan. <laughs> I'm a Ohio State fan, for those who don't know. <laughs> They'll come, and they're going to sit down in the kingdom. And indeed, listen, here's the last thing. Look at this. You're going to be shocked at some of the people who are there, and you're going to be surprised at some of the people who aren't there. That's what he says. They're going to be the last who will be first. The people you didn't even think mattered. You didn't even notice them. They were on the periphery. There they are, center stage in heaven. And the people who presented themselves and were all showy and pious and loved to tell you how much they give and how much they prayed, where are they? He gives us a warning and that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here. So they were following him. You catch that? They're in Perea, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, some people believe this is the good Pharisees, because there were some good Pharisees, religious leaders of the day who were warning him to get to Jerusalem and get out of there. There's trouble. Other people believe it's just the bad Pharisees who are saying, we need you to get to Jerusalem, because they wanted to trap him there whatever. They say, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. Remember, you need to know the players. Who's Herod? I used to read this going, who are these people? Herod is a dynasty of Herods. This Herod here is different from the one in Matthew 2 who tried to kill all the two-year-old babies and below. We have a dad, Herod the Great, that's him. And then this one, whose sons and grandsons who were from the line of Esau, who were always in conflict with Jacob, who were Idumeans, who lived way south, who got 
connected with the Romans, and the Romans said, oh, okay, cool. We'll make you, because they were puppets of the Romans, we'll make you governors in four places over top uh, of Israel. And this particular one is the one who Pilate, the Roman governor, sends to during the trial of Jesus. That's this Herod. This is also the Herod that wanted John the Baptist's head on a plate. And he says, get out of here because Herod's about ready to get you. Look what Jesus says. Write it down. I'm on God's timetable. You, you write this down. Go tell that fox. See, a fox was not very complimentary. <laughs> Could wreck things. Came out at night. Jesus lived in the light. Wily. That's what it represented. I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And what he's saying is, I do everything out in the open. And on the third day, I shall be perfected. Tell Herod, whatever happens to me, remember the third day. And Herod was around for it. Remember that, nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. And I gave you that verse, or verses in Acts 11. And at the end, he goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. By the way, in Psalm 91, you can go there, there's a psalm. It talks about how God gathers his people under his feathers. Does God really have feathers? Don't think so. But it's a way of saying this is the one who keeps and protects. Listen, there might be some things that happen in this life, but ultimately you're, you're going to be with me and kept by me. And when a hen gathers chicks... He knows they're in danger. And here you see the heart of Jesus to come out and love his people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, kills the prophets. I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her brood. But listen, you, you know what the great thing about love is? That's also the most dangerous thing. The great thing about real love, folks, is that you take your heart and you give it to another person. And you say to that person, you might not say it, but you do say it, especially in marriage. You know what you say to that person? Here, I'm trusting you with this, no matter what. And oh, by the way, the other person does, they give back your heart. And, and so there's a word for it. It's called being vulnerable. Men hate that, by the way. <laughs> At least some men. But anyway... <laughs> Being vulnerable, I'm going to give you this, and I know there's going to be hurts and struggles along the way, but that's yours, and hey, you give me your... And, and you know what's really painful? You know what's really painful? Kind of hard to say, but here's what's really painful. When you've extended that out there and the person says, I don't want it. <laughs> Tell me that ain't painful. Right? That's what Jesus is saying happened to him. He extended his heart out to the ones that he loved. He came to the Jewish nation first, to the Jews, and they said, we don't want you. I, I was like a hen with her chicks. I just wanted to protect and provide and be your God and be with you, and you said no. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. What does that mean? Well, a couple things. In Hosea, it said that the house of Israel would be desolate in that there would be no temple and no sacrifices and no kings or prophets for a while. And of course, in 70 AD, if you don't know that uh, historical date, the Romans came in and crushed the temple and knocked it over, and there is no temple to this day. But the Bible also tells us in Romans 11 that there's going to come salvation for all Israel. God has a future plan for Israel, but also to the person, to, to, on a personal level to the people of God. Sometimes we're desolate. We have no life in us, and we're like, what's going on? And he, see, just like when Jesus comes back and sits on the throne, if you want to be out of the wilderness, no longer desolate, you put Jesus on the throne of your life. You just say, Jesus, I'm yours. Your house has left you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, remember now, in prophecy, there's always, almost always a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. That's kind of like looking at mountains from 10 miles away. You say, wow, those two mountains are close together, but in reality, they're really far apart. You, they just look to you close together. And that's kind of what's happening here. Who, he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know this, that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, some of the people out in the crowd said this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But ultimately, this scripture right here is going to be fulfilled when Christ comes a second time in his glory. And, and where can you see that. Well, go over to a really obscure book who, by the way, I'm not envying the teacher of this book in the Bible college, trying to get this done in three or four shots. No way. And it's Zechariah. Who's, who's teaching that? Oh, boy. All right. I want you to see something. Over in Zechariah 12, it says this, that when Jesus comes back again, the Israelites, the Jews, will, in verse 10, they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mornings at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. I believe this is a where you find Romans eleven twenty six, which is all Israel will be saved, starts or comes to fruition when Jesus comes back and they recognize him as Messiah. Oh, by the way, turn over to Zechariah 14, verse 4. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it towards the south. You think when Jesus comes back, that's a prophecy when he comes back the second time, that he ain't going to make a big stir? It means they're going to say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Maybe you think what he's uh, lamenting over is the house of Israel. He's going to set it right with Israel. All Israel is going to be saved. But for you personally, if you're dry and desolate, when you recognize that Jesus is not not only the one who came the first time in the manger, but is also coming a second time, and he's going to come with us. If we've died first and gone to be with him, we're all going to come back with him and rule and reign, and he's going to come through that eastern gate and be there in the Mount of Olives going towards the Temple Mount. And the Jews are going to say, and we're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. So as we close here, and we're going to have uh, the folks come up and lead us in worship, the question for you and for I is, have you repented? Oh, you don't just feel sorry for your sin. Politicians do that. Sorry. You know, when politicians get found out, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. But, Bo, by the way, so do I. I do that. No, this is an agreeing with God that what you're doing and the way you're living, you're a sinner, and you turn and move towards God. Sorry. And uh, that's repentance. And then you stay there. It's an active, continuing verb. You've surrendered your life to Christ. You remain in this repentance. You can come to the place that Paul talked about in the book of Philippians, in the third chapter. You get to this place, Paul having his whole life pulled out from underneath him, saying this, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, listen, this is how we know him. Remember when he said, I'll know you in heaven or I won't know you in heaven? Paul hit it on the head or the nail on the head when he said, I count all things loss for the excellence of the things that Jesus gives me. He never said that. I'm, te- I'm teasing you. He said, no, no, no. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I just want to know Christ, Paul said. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung, rubbish. Remember when the tree was cut down, it said, give them one more year and refertilize? Here it is, folks, dung. What is God asking you to do? What is God moving you toward? That you can get to the place where you can say, just the excellent of knowing Christ is enough for me. Whether you give me circumstances in the toilet or circumstances on the mountain, I don't care. I just want to know you. Paul knew it. Paul said it. Why? So I could gain Christ, Paul said, and not only just gain Christ, but be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He's looking for you and I to come into this place where we know him. You know when you know somebody, you spend time with them. You just don't give them hay in the car. You don't turn on the radio and listen to sports FM and listen to it all the time and just, hey, how you doing? You do that to people you don't really like or you don't have time for. You see it? 
Let's be people who, A, repent, stay in repentance, and find him as the one who's excellent to know and nothing else. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. And we just ask, Lord, that you would teach us in these things and help us to grow in these things so that we can go out this week, Lord, by your light and your life and your resource to love those who are unlovable. And oh, by the way, Lord, thank you for loving me and us who are and have been unlovable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.